Good morning and happy 2019. Now we got to try that again. Happy 2019. All right. Good to see all you guys. How many of you are glad to say goodbye to 2018? All right. So at least at least like half of you, whether you're ready or not, here we go. We're launching into a brand new year. I'm excited about this year. I really believe God wants to do something amazing in your life this year. I think he wants to do something incredible in the life of our church body right here at New Life in 2019, and so I hope that you're pumped for it as well. I'm excited. We're going to be starting a brand new uh, message series uh, today as well on the life of David. I love stories, and if you love stories, I think that you're going to love this series because, man, this is an incredible story. It's an epic story. David's life is a life all about huge highs, deep valleys and lows, victories, tragedies, fall, redemption. This story has it all. David, as you probably already know, is the only person in all of Scripture who God called what? A man after my own heart. And David became this mighty military commander He expanded Israel's borders like never before or since. Uh, They were a wealthy country under his leadership. David took this tiny little podunk nation and he turned them into this world superpower. In some ways, every king since David has been compared to David. That's how impressive his reign really was. And yet the amazing thing is for all of his accomplishments, For all of David's accolades, we're going to see David in his humanity struggle, and we're going to see him fail. We're going to see him fall, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love about Scripture is it is brutally honest. You know what I mean? To me, that's one of the, the greatest proofs that all of this is actually true, because if you were trying to like invent or concoct some story or religion to gain followers or power or something like that, you would probably make the central characters look and sound really good, wouldn't you? Of course you would. But the scriptures, on the other hand, they paint the good, the bad, and the ugly. And man, there's a lot of ugly. And so we're going to learn a lot from the life of David over the course of the next couple months. But I think the most important, at least I hope, the most important thing we're going to learn together is that David points us forward to an even better king. He points us to the king of kings, to the king who will never stumble and never fall. That's King Jesus. And in that way, I think David is a a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's what a lot of Bible scholars would call a Jesus figure or a Jesus type, one who points us to a greater truth, one who even might point us to a greater king. You know, outside of Jesus, there's nobody who stands taller in all of the scriptures than David. David is mentioned 182 times in Scripture outside of his own story. He's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. There are over 60 chapters devoted to his life, to his story. As many of you know, he wrote most of the book of Psalms, the book of songs, right? The Scriptures just overflow with David, which means God has written a book, and he's devoted a lot of it to this guy, and he has a lot for us to learn from his life. And so I'm excited about this series. God willing, this series is gonna take us into the month of March. And I'm just trusting that God, through this series, through his word, is really going to speak to us 
that he's going to shape us, that he's going to shape our hearts to become hearts like his as we launch into this brand new year, uh, 2019 together. And so I hope that you're excited for this as I am. All right, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16 uh, this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up or turn them on. Go to 1 Samuel a little book in your Old Testament, and we're going to be in chapter 16 today. Let me give you a little background. In these days, when we kind of step into the narrative, uh, Israel did not have an earthly king. They were unique in that way. All the other nations around them had an earthly king. But Israel was ruled by God himself. It was called a theocracy. So they had prophets, and God would speak to the prophets, and then the prophets would speak to the people on behalf of God. And so they were kind of governed as a nation in this way, really directly by God himself. They were the only nation in the world that actually had God as their king. Now, we see if you read the Old Testament narrative, God brings them out of captivity in Egypt. He gives them the promised land. Man, they're being led at this point in time by perhaps the greatest prophet ever, the prophet Samuel, you'll meet him in just a minute. Samuel is this wise, godly man who had a deep love for God, and he really loved the people of his nation. So if you were in Israel back in these days, you really couldn't ask for more as a nation. And yet, what we see is that the people of Israel start to look around at all the countries around them who had earthly kings. And so you can almost kind of imagine the other countries saying to Israel, like, hey, where's your king? Like you can see our king right here. He's a big, bad dude. Everybody's scared of him. He's a mighty military commander. Where's your king? They're like, well, God is our king. You're telling, you're telling me your king is some invisible God that we can't even see? You got some friend in the sky? That, like, that's super lame. And so the Israelites start to think, you know what? Maybe that is, is kind of lame. Maybe we should have God on the one hand, but also maybe we should have an earthly king that can lead us into battle, somebody that we can just touch and see and almost worship. So even though God brought them out of Egypt, even though he fed them in the desert, even though he delivered them from the hands of countless enemies again and again and again, even though he's given them a land, a promised land, that the Bible says was, was overflowing with milk and honey, so it was rich, they were wealthy, that wasn't in the end enough for them. And they became dissatisfied with God. And I want you to understand this. It's not that they completely rejected God. It's that they decided that in order to be happy, they needed God plus something else. And don't you and I do the same exact thing? Don't lie. I know you do. I, I know I do because I know my heart. And I'm telling you right now, this wasn't just a problem for these people all these years ago. Our hearts today are tempted to believe the same lie. Well, it's, not, it's not that most of us reject God. The reality is most of you probably wouldn't be sitting here in this room this morning if you completely rejected God. Most of us are cool with God being in our lives, especially as long as he's doing what we think he should be doing in our lives. But many of us really want God plus something else to be happy, don't we? So we want God plus the perfect marriage, or we want God plus the perfect family, or we want God plus a better career, or a new car, or you name it, a better vacation, more money. 
like the stuff that we think we need outside of God to make us happy, those things become our kings. They become our idols. And so as we go through this story the next couple of months, man, I just want us to not lose sight of the fact that we do the same exact thing that the nation of Israel does. Their trap is our trap. So, man, let's, let's allow their mistake to reroute our lives, to reroute our hearts in 2019 so that we don't fall into the same trap of believing that anything outside of God could ever make us happy or secure or satisfied because none of those things will ever. Amen. So the people, they come to this prophet named Samuel, this godly guy, and they say to Samuel, hey, Samuel, give us a king. We know that God is our king and that he's governing us, but that's not good enough for us anymore. We want an earthly king. We want this big, huge, battle-tested guy to lead us into war against all these other nations. We want somebody that will intimidate these other nations. And God says, listen, God actually warns them. And he says to them, listen, this is not gonna go well for you. I'm ruling you. This is, if, you if I give you an earth, earthly king, this is not gonna go well for you. And they don't care. They say, listen, we don't care. We want a king. And so God relents, and he gives them a king named Saul, King Saul. Now, Saul was everything that you would ever want in an earthly king. The Bible tells us that he was a head taller than everybody else. So this guy stood out in a crowd. Saul would have been huge, strong. We know from the scriptures that he ended up being this uh, great military commander. He was a smart guy. And things started out pretty well for Saul. But there was only one problem with Saul as king. Saul's heart began to drift away from God. See, Saul, at the end of the day, was an insecure. He was a paranoid man that was all about himself. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he would win a war and then he would build a monument to himself. I mean, this guy was self-absorbed. He was disobedient to God. And so God calls his prophet Samuel and he says, listen, Samuel, I'm gonna take Saul out. I'm gonna take Saul out of the kingdom, and I'm gonna replace him with another king, with a king that is completely different than Saul. And so that's where we're gonna pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse one. And as we kind of go through this the next couple of months, let me just encourage you, sit down, take time, uh, read First and Second Samuel, fascinating books. We're gonna be parked in those two books primarily in this series, so I would encourage you to kind of read through those as we move along. But 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. See, Samuel was actually grieving over Saul. Samuel loved Saul, but God was moving on from him because his heart was far from God. And God says, Samuel, listen, I want you to go to Jesse and the town of Bethlehem because one of his sons, one of Jesse's sons is gonna be the next king, verse two. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So Samuel hears this from this command from the Lord, I am gonna remove Saul. And uh, Samuel's kind of like, oh, okay, God, um, but I really don't wanna die today. Remember, Saul is this paranoid, violent, powerful king, and you want me to go tell him that he's out. <laughs> How do you think that's gonna go for me? This is a pretty fair concern from Samuel, I think. And God says, listen, Samuel, I want, you to, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. 
I want you to take a sacrifice. I want you to travel to Bethlehem to meet with Jesse, and I'm going to tell you what to do there. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate or, or wash yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so the city leaders in Bethlehem, they see Samuel coming, perhaps from a long way off. And it appears that they almost, they kind of freak out a little bit. You got to remember, Samuel is number two in command in this nation, right? You have Saul as king. You have Samuel as prophet. It's kind of Saul's right-hand man. And so you see Samuel coming with his, his posse. That would have been unusual in a little town like Bethlehem. And they think, oh, no. This is not good. Maybe we've done something bad. Maybe he's coming to like discipline us, to punish us. Samuel sees them, kind of meets them on the road. He sees that they're kind of quaking in their boots. He's like, relax, boys. I come in peace. Nobody's going to die today. Everybody just take a deep breath. Relax a little bit. It's actually going to be good. We're going to go and we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to have a feast. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely, now this is one of Jesse's sons, surely the Lord uh, anointed is before him. See, uh, Samuel comes up and he begins to look at the sons of Jesse and he's thinking in his mind, one of these guys is going to be the king. One of these guys is a guy that God has chosen to be the next king. And I'm just going to guess it's probably this guy, Eliab, right here. And he looks the part. This guy has it together. He's probably a lot like Saul. He's a big, strong, good looking guy. Samuel sees him, and Samuel's like, well, that's got to be him. That dude is a stud. That is our next king. Now, the next verse is both shocking and profounding simultaneously. Like, you should have the next verse underlined in your Bible. This is what it says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, church, God doesn't look at the stuff we look at. God doesn't care about the stuff that we care about. God looks at the heart, which means God is never going to come to you and be like super impressed by your sweet new wardrobe. He's never going to be impressed by your cool new hairstyle. He's not going to be impressed by your promotion at work or the fact that you got a new car. God is never going to come to you and say, what, what, tell, tell me again how much you made last year. Wow, I am so lucky to have you on my team. I don't know that I could be God without having such a talented, good-looking person on my team. God is never going to come to you and do that because God doesn't give a rip about outward appearances. He does not value the things that this world values. So look, God, when God looks at you, he looks at one thing. He looks at your heart. In the New Testament, when the religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked him what the greatest commandment was, Jesus' answer was, love the Lord God with all of your heart. Later, Jesus taught that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you love most in this life, whatever you crave most in this life, has your heart. Why does God care so much about our hearts? Here's why. 
Because everything we are flows from the heart. I've said this before, but I believe it to be true. Listen, we each have one throne in our hearts. Either God sits on that throne or we have something else sitting on that throne, but there's never room for more than one God on the throne of your heart. So God is looking for men. He's looking for women who are willing to give him their hearts and be fully devoted to him. Second Chronicles 16.9, this will be on the screens for you, says this. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who heart whose heart is loyal, or your translation may say, fully committed to him. This is the heart that God will use. Listen to me. God is not looking for the most talented person. God is not looking for the richest person or the best dressed person or the best looking person. His eyes roam the earth in search for a passionate and devoted heart to him. And when he finds a heart like that, He does incredible things as the life of David will show us. God looks at the heart. Now, I think that should probably be a lesson for all of us because if we're honest, most of us, probably all of us, make snap judgments about people the instant that we meet them based on their outward appearance. And we don't even have to try to do this. It just happens instinctively. We see someone and we've automatically got them categorized in some file in our brains. You probably do it and don't even realize you're doing it. I remember, uh, and I tell this story uh, to, to my great shame. I confess a lot of things to you guys, but I remember this, this time um, in my early 20s, and this may come as a shock to some of you guys, but when I was in my teens and, and especially in my early 20s, I fancied myself an athlete, okay? Now, I, I, was, I wasn't a great athlete, um, but I was decent. You know, I played a number of sports. I was a, in good shape and enjoyed playing sports. And uh, so I just kind of thought of myself as, you know, an athletic dude, you know, an, an athlete. And so I can remember one time in my early 20s, I, I met this other guy. And uh, this guy was literally, he was the opposite of me, okay? So this guy was, he was not athletic. He was super short, and I'm not tall, but he made me look tall. So he was super short. We in our early 20s, the guy was already completely bald. He had like these nerdy Coke bottle-looking glasses on, and he's a, he was a super touchy, kind of feely guy. You know what I mean? Uh, so for, like for most guys, we, we got like the standard handshake, right? And then we got the bro hug. So, so we kind of do the handshake, and we come around and it still keeps a little distance between the bodies. So it's a little bit comfortable. It's not too intimate. Well, this guy, he got in like underneath the bro hug and came in and did like a chest to chest, like a squeeze, like I could feel his body against mine. And I was uncomfortable with that because I'm not really a touchy-feely guy like that. Now, our worship pastor here, Mike Watkins, is. And so if you ever want to just give him like a bro hug like that, like a chest to chest, he loves that. So give him one of those as you leave today. But I remember, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, like, this dude is weird. <laughs> like, and I literally, I had the thought, like, I could never be friends with a guy like that. I could never be friends with a guy like that. 
And as God would have it, that guy ended up being my best friend for years in my twenties. We are still friends to this day. But listen, from the moment I met that guy, I had categorized him in my mind and thought I could never be friends with somebody like that. See, I look at the outward, but God doesn't do that. God looks at the heart. And as God's people, as Christ followers, we need to be a people that look through the exterior to the heart. That means that we have to take time to get to know people. That means that we don't just get to write people off when they don't fit into a nice little neat category in our minds that we like. Listen, oftentimes the best leaders, the best small group leaders, the best deacons, the best elders, the best staff members are not the people that you would pick out of a lineup. But their hearts are devoted to God. They're not perfect, never perfect, but their hearts are fully devoted to the Lord. And I'm just praying that God would do that increasingly in us here at New Life. Like, God, make us the church that people in this city would say, man, those New Life people, their hearts belong to the Lord. They are passionate about God. They just love God and they love people like nobody's business. See, God looks at big, strong, handsome, impressive Eliab. Samuel looks at him and Samuel says, wow. And God says, nope. Verse eight. Then Jesse called another son, Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons Passed before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So Jesse brings seven of his sons, and each time God tells Samuel, nope. Why? Because God looks at the heart. And so Jesse keeps bringing the next oldest, the next biggest, the next strongest, the next best looking son out. And God every time says, no, 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 no. And finally, there are no more sons standing there. And Samuel's like, uh, Jesse, <laughs> are, are all your sons here? And Jesse's like, now that you mention it, I, it totally slipped my mind, but yeah, there, we, there's David, but David is completely unimpressive. He is the runt of the litter. He's out watching the nasty, dirty sheep. You don't want to see David, which, of course, you know, as a, as a shepherd in those days, it was like the lowest job in the culture. If you couldn't do much else, it'd stick you out in the field with a sheep. Nobody wanted that job. So David, in, in one sense, at least at this stage of his life, he's He's a nobody. Like his own dad isn't even impressed with him. You know that's bad, right? When your own parents aren't even impressed with you. And Samuel says, no, no, I don't care. I want you to go get him. And you kind of picture, maybe Samuel's a little bit miffed at this point. Like, Jesse, man, what do you not understand about the word all? I said, all of your sons. You go get David and we're gonna stand here. We're not even gonna sit down. We're not gonna feast, nothing. We're gonna stand here until you go get David and you bring him here. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he, that's David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome 
And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So it tells us that David shows up and he's ruddy, which literally in the Hebrew means red. And so some scholars said maybe he had red hair. More than likely he had uh, red skin, which means like he blushed a lot. He had rosy cheeks. And it says he had pretty eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm looking for the next warrior king, I'm not looking for like the short, rosy-cheeked dude with beautiful eyes. So like when, I, when I'm reading that this week, I kind of picture David as looking like the boy version of Taylor Swift. Now listen, like if you're a T-Swift fan, that's cool. I kind of like Taylor sometimes too, but that's not what I'm looking for when I'm looking for somebody to lead me into battle against all these ferocious, bloodthirsty nations, right? For that, I want the huge guy with big muscles and like a 10-inch scar ripped across his face. Looks like somebody chewed half of his ear off. He's been in so many fights and battles and war. Like, that's my dude. But God doesn't see as we see. God sees little David, and he says, yep, that's the one. That's, that's my dude. That little runt with the rosy cheeks and the pretty eyes, that's my next king. Because I see his heart, and I love his heart. Now, if this story sounds familiar to you, it should. David was anointed by Samuel, and it tells us that the Holy Spirit rushes upon him. Fast forward to the New Testament times. Jesus was anointed in baptism by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit descends or rushes on him, launches him into his earthly ministries. As we go through this series, the similarities between David and Jesus are astounding, and they are intentional. Now, notice this. They're both born in Bethlehem. David is a shepherd, Jesus is called the good what? The good shepherd. David was betrayed by those close to him, as we'll see later on. Jesus was betrayed by his own disciples. David came to deliver his people from an enemy. Jesus delivered his people from the enemy of sin and death. David slayed a giant named Goliath. Jesus slayed a giant named Death. David lived for his people. Jesus died for his people. Don't miss this, church. David is a Jesus figure. He points us forward to the good shepherd, to the perfect king, Jesus. Jesus is the better David. See, ultimately, this, this whole book that we call the Bible is one story. And at the center of that one story stands one hero named Jesus. Everything else in this book either points us forward to Jesus or points us back to Jesus. Now, David himself knew this. David starts off, he wrote Psalm 23, he wrote most of the Psalms, but he wrote Psalm 23, and he starts off that Psalm by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. My kids, all three of my kids just memorized Psalm 23. They can, they can quote it to you. Ask them after the, the service is over. That Psalm was written by King David. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd. David was saying, it's ultimately not about me. I'm not the good shepherd. There's one coming after me. He's the good shepherd. He's the Messiah who will save his people eternally. The whole thing, church, this whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is about the hero Jesus. Don't miss that. Now, God didn't choose David because he was somebody. He chose David because his heart was fully devoted to him. Now, here, here's the scary thing. As I kind of studied this this week, scary thing even as I examine my own life, um, 
just kind of looking at this, man, I, I feel like for a lot of us, we can live our entire lives. Listen to me. We can live our entire lives trying to be like Eliab, trying to be strong, trying to be successful, trying to look put together to the world around us, trying to be smart. And here's the only problem with that. God isn't looking for Eliab. God's looking for David. And I'm so afraid that so many of us just kind of like miss the boat on this and we're spending our lives on things that don't matter at all in the end. Because God looks on the heart. So my question for you this morning as we kind of stand on the, the precipice of a brand new year, brand new possibilities in 2019, is just to do a little self-examination and ask yourself, where's my heart? As we step into a brand new year, where's my heart? Now I want to give you three applications from this portion of David's story and then we'll, we'll begin to wrap it up. The first one is this. Believer, embrace your ordinary life. God uses the ordinary. In 2019, one of your New Year resolutions should be to embrace your ordinariness. I read an article uh, last week that said in 2019, will be, 2019 will be the year of lonely people pretending to be happy on social media. So true and so sad. We spend our whole lives buying the lie that our value comes from how many Twitter followers we have or how many likes we can get on Facebook or how successful we are, how good looking we are. If people perceive us as having it all together, we spend our entire lives trying to become Eliab when God is not looking for Eliab. He's looking for the heart of David. And David was as ordinary as ordinary comes. He was the runt of the litter with cute little eyes, right? He would have been the last guy picked for dodgeball. You guys remember that PE class? Some of y'all still have nightmares about that, right? The PE teacher says, hey, we're gonna divide it up. You got two team captains and you're praying one thing the whole time. What are you praying? God, please help me not be picked last. That's the most humiliating thing. God, I'll be a missionary in Africa you don't help, just help me not get picked last. David was picked last. Nobody picked David. David didn't have a huge Twitter following. He wasn't the best looking brother. He wasn't the biggest brother. He wasn't the strongest. Nobody picked David except God. And it was because David embraced his ordinary, monotonous life while loving God with everything that he had that God chose to use him in extraordinary ways. Friend, we are all ordinary people, but we have an extraordinary God. We need to stop trying to lift ourselves up and make ourselves look better, try to make ourselves extraordinary. We need to stop that, and we need to start pressing into our extraordinary God. So that's take home number one. Here's number two. Learn to love the sheep fields of life, friend. David was anointed as king, but scholars tell us it was probably between 10 and 15 years before he actually became king. You know what he was doing for many of those years, those 15 years? We know for a fact that a lot of those years, he was back watching sheep. Do you know what's more boring and monotonous than watching sheep? Nothing. There's nothing more. It's the most boring job in the world. 
But God used those years in David's life to prepare him for what was coming next. You think that perhaps David got pretty good using a slingshot when he was bored out of his mind sitting out in a sheet field day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. That came in handy, didn't it? You think David maybe got good at write, sitting down and writing songs as he sat out there with nothing to do month after month, year after year? He ended up writing most of the book of Psalms, which are really songs, right? And he did that in the sheep field of life. God used those years in David's life. But see, the problem for most of us is we want to skip the sheep field years of our lives and we want to go straight to the palace years. The problem with that is that's not how it works in God's kingdom. That's never the way it works in God's kingdom. Think about all the stories throughout Scripture. Think about Moses, right? God calls Moses to lead his people uh, out from slavery from the Egyptians. And what happens to Moses? He goes out into the desert for 40 years. Think about Jesus. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. He's getting ready to launch into his earthly ministry and proclaim the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit leads him out into the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Think about Paul. The book of Acts tells us that Paul has this radical conversion experience. He meets Jesus. He's getting ready to launch his ministry, and he gets sent to Arabia for three or four years. He goes out into the desert before he comes back and launches one of the most prolific ministries this world has ever seen. Listen, guys, if we skip the training ground, we never get where God wants to take us. See, we're always looking to like the next season of our life. So if I, were, if I were just to guess, if you're here and you're young and you're single, you probably have the same thought in your mind that I had when I was young and single, and that is, man, I can't wait till I get married. When I get married, all my problems are gonna vanish. All my problems are gonna go away and things are gonna be good and I'm gonna be happy. And then maybe you get married and you're kind of like in the honeymoon years, the first year or two, and you're thinking in your mind like, man, when we have kids, when we just have kids, man, and we have a family and we're serving God together, like then I will be happy and I'll sell out and give my life to God. And then you have kids and you're like, man, when are kids going to college? And I was like, have my, have my life back and my money back. Or you're young, you're just coming out of high school, college, and man, you can't wait to land that first job, that first gig, and you get it, and that's cool for like a month, and then you're like, man, I can't wait till I get that promotion. I just, man, when I get that promotion, if I could just make $10,000 more a year, man, I'd be able to do whatever I want, take a nice vacation, have retirement, all that kind of stuff, it's gonna be great. And then you get promoted into VP management or whatever it is, man, and you move your way up the, the corporate ladder, and you kind of, after a few years, you're like, man, I can't wait till I can retire. Man, once I can retire, man, I can spread my wings. I can do all the traveling I want to do. I can go see my kids and my grandkids, man. And we just live our lives in this perpetual state of wishing for the next season, and we believe this lie that, man, whenever I get to that next season, then I'll be happy. And then I'll live for God. And then I'll sell out for God. And I'm here to tell you, no, you won't. You learn to live for him now. This moment, right in the middle of that smelly sheep field, 
right in the middle of your disappointment, in the monotony of your nine to five, in that little cubicle that you hate, in the school you despise, in the career you wish you didn't have, in the marriage you wish was better, raising the kids you wish were better behaved, you learn to have a devoted heart right in the middle of your mess. And God will honor that and he will use that every single time. Bloom right where God has planted you, friend. Don't waste your sheep-filled years of your life. Learn to embrace them. Learn to love those years. Be faithful where you are. Devote your heart fully to God right there. Not tomorrow. Not in the next season of life when you think things are going to be easier. Right here, right now, right in the mess. Number three, David teaches us to be faithful when life isn't fair. Now, I hear that statement at least once a day from my kids. If you have kids, you probably hear it a lot too. That's not fair, Daddy. And my kids are right. Life isn't always fair. And you can't always control your circumstances. But you can decide where your heart is going to live. And you can choose to live in bitterness, and you can choose to live in impatience, and you can choose to live in anger, or you can choose to have a devoted, passionate heart for God, even when your world seems like it's upside down. Think about David for a minute. He gets excluded by his own dad and brothers. Samuel says, hey, bring all your sons. David gets left out in a sheep field. He doesn't even get invited to the parties that his own family throws. You think that felt good for David? You think life felt fair for him? You think he felt loved and uplifted by being completely forgotten about by his own family? Look, friend, life is not gonna be unfair. There are gonna be days where it feels like life is kicking your front teeth in. It's gonna hurt. It's not always gonna be fair. I'm just telling you, in that moment, be faithful. Keep your heart devoted to God. He has not abandoned you. God is using the disappointment and the pain and the rejection in your life in ways that you can't even imagine yet. God wastes nothing in his economy. Absolutely nothing. He wastes nothing. Embrace God, friend, even when life isn't fair, especially when life isn't fair. There's not a more compelling picture in the world than to watch somebody suffer, to watch somebody walk through pain, to to watch somebody walk through a period of injustice, of something that's not fair, and to still find their joy and treasure in Christ. That life is beautiful. And the world cannot explain that life. And that's the heart God is looking for. Believer, be faithful in the sheep fields of life. Be faithful when life isn't fair. Embrace your ordinariness because you have an extraordinary God. Now, David easily could have become bitter. Could he not? I mean, he could have been bitter about this. He could have been angry. He could have been vengeful even. He's forgotten about. He's not considered even worthy of bringing to the party. And now, God has just chosen him to be the king 
David easily, and I probably would have done this, maybe you did, David easily could have turned around and looked at his dad and his brothers who forgot about him, and he could have been like, what's up now, bros? What's up now? All those years picking on me, sending me out to the sheep field while you guys are having a good time. All those years you neglected me. Man, you guys bow down and kiss my feet. You bow down and kiss my feet. Maybe I'll let you be servants in my palace, you punks. That's not what he did. That's not the reaction David has. David stays humble. David stays faithful to God. His heart was passionately devoted to God, whether he was in the sheep field of life or whether he was being crowned king. It didn't matter to David because his heart belonged to God. See, that's the incredible thing about knowing God is our best is always ahead of us. I wanna finish or close out by quoting Jonathan Edwards, the famous uh, pastor and revivalist. Uh, He wrote this about the life of those of us who trust Jesus, those of us who have our hearts fully committed and devoted to God. This is what he says. Our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. As we close this morning, I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a minute as the band comes up. And I have one question one question that I just want you to kind of consider in light of what we've learned about David's life. And really, as we kind of step into a brand new year together, 2019, and all the possibilities that kind of lay out there before us, and here's the question, are you gonna spend your life in 2019 trying to be like Eliab when God is looking for David? Like, are you, are you fighting to make it look like you've got it all put together on the outside, when the reality is you're falling apart in your heart. Friend, that is not what God has for you. Could 2019, could 2019 be the year that we finally, fully devote our hearts to God? Could 2019 finally be the year that we just stop caring about all the goofy stuff stupid stuff that we chase and we think is so important in our life and it just ends up wrecking us more times than not? Could this be the year that instead of chasing all that stuff, man, we just decide to give our lives fully to the one who can satisfy us forever and we just give our lives to God and maybe right now, even in the silence of this moment in your heart, maybe you just make a commitment to God. You just consecrate yourself to God. You say, God, this year I'm giving myself to you. I am so tired of living for other people. I'm so tired of living for their approval. I'm so tired about caring what people think about me. Whether the world thinks I'm a success or a failure, I'm so tired. And so God, this year, I'm just gonna give my life to you and I'm gonna give my heart to you and I'm gonna trust you with it. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, God, I don't know what that looks like. But all I know is I want to give my heart to you and I want to be fully devoted to you just like David was. And then let the chips fall where they may in my life. God, let that be us. Let that be this year. And pray for us. Father, we confess. We confess. I confess, Father, that far too often we are so focused on the wrong things. We spend our lives just pursuing and chasing stuff that's not gonna matter. 
God, we despise the difficult seasons of life. God, we run from the sheep fields of our lives where you do your best work. Father, we spend our entire lives trying to be somebody that you're not even looking for. God, help this year to be different. Help 2019 to be different. Help us to devote our hearts to you fully, maybe like we've never done before, God, so that we can step into the life that you've created for us, a life of abundance and freedom and peace and joy and not worrying about anything that doesn't matter, God. God, we know that that life is only possible in Jesus. We ask it in his name for his glory and our good. Amen. Church, will you stand with me?